The Kentucky Derby takes place every year, uh, the first weekend in May, in Louisville, Kentucky, Church Hill Downs. But just actually about an hour and a half east of Louisville, and that uh, horse track is really what is more the center of horse country in Kentucky. Uh, that's where you'll find, it's Lexington, Kentucky, and that's where you'll find uh, just rolling hills of pastures, beautiful fence lines, majestic barns set up at the top of hills. I mean, just these beautiful farms. And right there in Lexington is another really historic racetrack, Keeneland. And I actually grew up just quite literally down the street from Keeneland. On a, just off of a road named after a horse, Man of War Boulevard. Uh, that's right where, where I grew up. And, and there's something that happens in Lexington at the end of the winter. Everybody's ready to just shake off the winter doldrums. We're ready to step out of there and enjoy some springtime and check in and see who else made it through the winter. And, uh, and where you go to find that out is usually the spring meet, uh, opening day of the spring meet at Keeneland. And it's just this majestic event. It's beautiful pageantry and, and all kinds of stuff that's just happening there. The jockey silks are beautiful. The horses in the paddock are stunning. The bugler calls them out and people come out, you know, the horses come out to, to race and, and people do come out to see this event. And, and men are dressed in seersucker suits. And, and the women are dressed in spring dresses and they have hats on and the whole deal. And it's just this really majestic you know, event full of pageantry. And it's a lot of fun to go to. And it's just, you're there, sure, there is some people betting on the races. Uh, but most of what's happening is actually people catching up and socializing. It really is one of the social centers of Lexington. It's a cultural event for people in Lexington. And so uh, we would go, and then as the, as the meet would go on, uh, the races would go on, sometimes even uh, young men would skip school uh, to go to the races, and there they would f bump into their teachers uh, who were skipping school, and it was an awkward moment for both of us, or both of them, um, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that had been known to happen before. And so when I moved to Orlando, I discovered, oh, well, well we don't have horse tracks here, uh, but we do have dog tracks. Um, and so my friend and I thought, well, okay, let's go check it out. And, uh, and so we went uh, and off we go walking into the, to the dog track. Not so much the social center of Orlando, uh, if you know that. Not as much, you know, majestic, you know, there were no seersucker suits. I didn't see a single lady with a hat on, uh, you know, the whole time we were there. We had a good time. The dogs are beautiful. Uh, but there was this thing as I sat there, just race after race watching, there's this thing that happens at the dog track that just started to wear on me. And that is, over and over, the dogs get loaded into this gate. The bell rings, the gate swings open, and off goes this rabbit. If you've ever been to the races, that's what happens. There's this metal rabbit that shoots out and goes around the track, and these dogs give everything they've got chasing this rabbit, and of course, they don't get it. And just race after race after race of watching them chase after this rabbit, you start to cheer for it, just like, will one of those dogs get that rabbit? You know, And then you start to realize, it's a metal rabbit. What would they even do if they caught it? And it just was an image that kind of was burned on my mind from that day. And I think it was burned on my mind because it's often a metaphor for me. It's often a metaphor for us. I know it's a metaphor for our culture. 
because the, the, we step into the gate of a new day, the alarm bell rings, the gate swings open, and we go off chasing after what we cannot get to, and if we did get to it, would not satisfy. And we don't see that any more than when it comes to money. And so Jesus comes to us in the midst of this culture, in the midst of this chasing of the rabbit, and he's got good news. It's, it's hard news, but it's good news. He tells us this story of the rich fool. Now, I'm pretty happy, actually, to be able to preach this story, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we're in this parable series, uh, and we've come to this one. And I didn't know that I was going to be assigned this one, and when I looked and I saw that I had this, I was like, oh, no. I got to stand up here and talk about money and greed and, and, uh, and, you know, good news, right? And so this passage has been beating me up for weeks. And so, frankly, I'm so happy to preach it, one, so that it can be over with, and two, because misery loves company, right? And so now this passage can beat you up as much as it beat me up, right? You know, because I've really had to evaluate my relationship with money and possessions and stuff all week, and I think it's going to be so much better for us to evaluate that together. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus actually talks a lot about money. About 25% of the time in the Bible, when you open it up and you see those words in red, 25% of the time he's talking about money. And he's doing that, uh, many people say, he talks more about money than any other subject. And I actually think that's not quite true. He talks about the kingdom of God more than any other subject. But he knows that money is probably the easiest thing that will distract us from stepping into the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom that he came to proclaim. And so he talks about money a lot. That's why he said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And for us who live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, uh, his words are often disruptive. And whether you feel like you've got more than enough money or nowhere close to enough money, he's got words for us today, for us to hear. They're disruptive words for our culture and our context. He says at the beginning of Mark that he came to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. But Mark doesn't tell us good news for who. Luke does, though. Luke says it's for the poor. It's for the marginalized. It's for those outside the dominant economy of the day. And so for those of us who live inside that economy and in that, he's got some disruptive words. But if we'll hear him, there's really good news. And so let's take a look at it. It's, it parable comes to us in Mark chapter 12. And here's the, here's the scene. Actually, at this point in the ministry, Jesus is basically a rock star. Right? He's traveling around the country and thousands of people are coming to see him, literally thousands. And so that's what's happening here. Many thousands of people have gathered to hear Jesus, so much so that they're stepping on each other, the scripture says, which is kind of an interesting detail. And I don't know if there's a hush in the crowd or if Jesus stops talking or whatever happens, but there's a young man that has managed to push his way up into the front within earshot of Jesus and he asks something of Jesus. A lot of people did that, right? They'd ask him for healing, or they'd ask him for forgiveness, or they'd ask him for something. And it always makes me wonder, what would, what would I ask for? What would you ask for? Well, this guy took the opportunity to ask Jesus to help him get more money. And Jesus was 
maybe less uh, than gracious with that request here. It says in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, he being Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, he turned to the crowd, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Curious phrase there, every form of greed. The word that, that he uses there, this connotation has this reaching connotation. It means always looking for more. Beware of reaching. Beware of always looking for more. You see, the guy in the, in the story, he actually, in the story, he actually already had some inheritance. Jewish law was really clear about this. The older brother would get a double portion, and then the rest would be divided among the, the rest of the, of the brothers. And so this is clearly a younger brother who has some, and he's coming to Jesus saying, hey, I don't feel like this is a fair shake. Can you make my brother give me more? And Jesus says, whoa, beware of that kind of reaching. Beware of that always looking for more. That's pretty tough for us. We live in a culture. We live where we are bombarded day after day, actually by message after message saying, reach for more. We call it the advertising industry. The Bible would call it professional coveting industry. It's what's trying to get us to do. I was in marketing and sales. Give you a little bit of insider information. We actually, uh, at one point, uh, we, we were doing some, some really large ad buys. I was working for a Fortune uh, 500 company, and, and we were doing some big ad buys, uh, bigger than Northland's annual operating budget. I mean, you know, so millions and millions of dollars. And so I got to work with some ad agencies, and, and a part of that, I learned some history of advertising. And it's fascinating to know what's going on in these messages every day. At the beginning, advertising, let's say we were going to start a, a vacuum cleaner company in the 1900s, all right, which I realize why, uh, but that would make us all vacuum cleaner salesmen, which, hey, sounds great. Okay, so uh, let's say we were going to do that. Uh, the advertising messaging actually would be really focused on the features of the product, four horsepower motor, right? That's what that would be. It'd be like, you need this vacuum cleaner. It's got a four horsepower motor. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea how much that is. That might like, that's more than a go-kart. Like you might be riding it around. The, but anyways, that's what it would be, a four horsepower motor. Or if let's say it was a clothing company we we're going to start, it would just be finest cotton, you know, the finest cotton. And marketers pretty quickly figured out, you know what? We can't just talk about what the features are. We need to help people understand what difference that makes in their lives. So we got to let them know the benefits. And so this four horsepower motored vacuum cleaner go-kart that we have here, now we would say, well, it gets out twice as much dirt. It's going to get twice as much dirt out of the carpets. Or this clothing company, it's going to be, you know, more comfortable fabrics. Not just the finest cottons, but more comfortable, better fitting clothes. And then... Kind of mid-century, there was an interesting twist. Somebody in the advertising industry figured out, you know, there's a, just a better way to do this. And they began to pivot, not from features and benefits, but to identity marketing. And so all of a sudden, they began to invite us to form our identity based on our products. And here's how they did it. They said, not just is this a four horsepower, you know, vacuum cleaner that'll get, you know, twice as much carpet out. They stepped over here and said, and you might have heard this, you'll be happier with a Hoover. 
Have you ever seen that Hoover ad? Very classic ad. You'll be happier with a Hoover. There was other advertisements that either said or showed this idea, and forgive the 1950s gender stereotyping here, but talking about what they said, they said, be a better wife. Be the wife you want to be. Not this vacuum cleaner does this and it'll have this result, but you can be the wife you want to be with this kind of vacuum cleaner. For the men, for the men, you know, this, not this idea of organic cotton is more breathable style. It comes over, be a man, I mean, organic cotton, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Organic cotton, you know, finest cottons that, you know, better, you know, breathable, more better fitting clothes comes over, be a man of style. All of a sudden, you know what happened? We bought stuff like crazy. It launched the luxury goods market. The luxury goods market took off and all of a sudden we were beginning to identify and build our own identities based on the products we own. You know what happened? We let our life be our possessions. What was born were the ideas of I'm a Mac, I'm a PC, right? I'm Pepsi. Oh, I'm Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, we would begin, we would draw lines on the brands, right? I'm a Ford guy. Oh, I'm a Chevy guy, right? You know, I mean, all of a sudden, and we would sticker these, and we still do, and what we do, we sticker these brands all over ourselves, and we walk around, and we go, here I am. I am this car, this clothes, this brand, this thing, this house, this neighborhood, this piece. That is who I am. And you know what Jesus says to us? Beware. Life is more than possessions because when we begin to define our life by our stuff, you know what happens? When we want more life, when we want better life, what do we do? We reach for more stuff. We reach for better stuff. And all of a sudden we get caught in debt. We get caught in anxiety, maintaining what we have. We get caught trying to protect this savings account that we've built up to give us security. And before we know it, boom, we are trapped in a cycle of thinking that our life is our possessions and our possessions are our life. And Jesus very clearly says to this man who was doing it and to us, beware of all forms of reaching because your life is more than your possessions. And then he tells a story. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Wait, fool? I mean, if we walked into the bookstore today, I think we would see just a whole aisle of people teaching us how to be this man. I mean, I can picture an end cap with this guy and the title is how I farmed my way to financial freedom and how you can too. Right? Can you see that? I mean, fool, what an interesting thing. I mean, isn't this what, if we're not caught in just consumerism and spending, I mean, are we not supposed to save and build and retire early and hang out and drink, you know, pina coladas on the beach or whatever the case may be? You know, is that not? Jesus says, you fool. Well, why does he say that? Well, the clue, or God says to him, you fool, the clue is in the pronouns. Look at this. As he goes through, he keeps saying, my crops tear down my barns, 
There I'll store my grain and my goods, and you have many goods. You see, the problem here with this guy, what makes him a fool, isn't that he's rich. The problem is that he's selfish. The problem isn't that he's rich, it's that he's not righteous. He thinks this stuff is all about himself. God isn't coming to him saying, you fool, you have a bunch of stuff, and now, you know, you're an idiot. No, 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 no. He's saying, no, you've misunderstood why you have this stuff. Look at this next line. It's really, really interesting. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. This required actually is a financial term. It has connotations of a loan being called in. You fool, this very night I'm calling in the loan of your life. And what have you done? You have spent your life on yourself. You've missed it. You think this stuff is about you. In other words, this guy is a fool because he has misunderstood hashtag blessed. Right? You ever see that? Somebody gets a new car and they take a selfie and then they're like, hashtag blessed. Well, yes, yes, okay, that's great. But that's a very surface understanding of that idea. That's not a very biblical understanding of hashtag blessed, right? Here is the thing. Hashtag blessed from a biblical sense means hashtag blessed to be a blessing. When God started this whole redemptive project, Genesis 12, 3, here Pastor Joel talk about this all the time. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is coming and saying, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff. Why? Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. From a biblical understanding, blessing isn't about the stuff itself. It's about the fact that it gives you the opportunity to participate with God in all of what he is doing to redeem the whole earth. Otherwise, the statement of Jesus, it's better to give than receive, doesn't make any sense. Right? Think about that. Like if I don't have a car and we go out here in the parking lot after the service and you give me your car, how are you better off than me? I'm like, I've now got a car and you don't. Like, you know, stinks to be you, sucker. Like, and I drive away. Like, how is that better? No, there has to be something deeper underneath the surface of that. And there is in the Bible. The idea here is that actually by the resources you have, the greater the opportunity that you have to participate. It means God has blessed you so that you can participate with him in his project to redeem the whole earth. How much of your stuff does God want? He wants all of it. All of it. Is it a sin to be rich? No. Is it a sin to be selfish? Yes. Yes. And that's why he's a fool. He's a fool because he doesn't understand that. And so for us, how do we not get caught up in that? How do we not get caught reaching? How do we not get caught thinking that the abundance that we have is just for ourselves? How do we not, in other words, do what Jesus said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How does that not become us? Well, the good news is that Jesus goes on for the next 12 verses to begin to explain how we don't have to live that way. He's got good news for us. And here's the thing, he's got good news whether you think you've got more than enough or whether you think you have less than enough because he can help us live on a totally different plane with a totally different value shift. 
It's a famous passage. We don't have time for me to just go verse by verse by verse and, and uh, you know, break it down and you'd be bored uh, and I don't want to do that to you. So uh, I'm going to summarize, but it's a famous passage. You guys know this. It's the, it's the scene, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. There's a scene in there that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this will be added. You know, the, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a passage, right? And what Jesus is doing through this whole passage is he's actually helping you live a life rich toward God. And in order for us to do that and not live a life rich toward ourselves or rich toward our stuff, there are three sort of value pivots that we have to make. Right? We're talking about money. It's about value. And he's got to, he gives us three pivots. And the first one is this. We've got to recognize our value as children of God. Look at this. In verse 33... Jesus says this, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24, Jesus says this, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, yet they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Jesus' first point is, hey, if you're going to live a life rich toward God, not caught up in reaching and greed, the starting point, the foundational point is you've got to understand that God is in love with you. That you are his child, that God loves you more than life itself. In fact, we know that because he died for us. And it allows us a different basis for our identity. It allows us a different pursuit. It allows us to begin to step away from this other life of just chasing possessions and chasing that leads to anxiety. I was with my oldest daughter, uh, this is a, just a few months ago, and we were running errands together, uh, and it just ended up being me and her, and, and we were kind of out and about, and she was talking, telling me some story or some idea that she had been uh, just pondering and working on, and I had this thought that hit me, and it kind of hit me in this first moment, and you'll see why, just with, with great admiration, and it was followed immediately with, with just you know, equal parts guilt. And the thought that hit me as I was just listening to her and just taking it in was, oh, she's my favorite. And I immediately go, oh, no, I'm a terrible dad, <laughs> right? Like, oh, man, you know, but it's true. I don't know what to do about it. Like, I mean, I'm terrible. You know, sorry, you know, Charlie and Annabelle, but like, Madeline's my favorite. You know, and she just, we hang out, we spend the time, and I'm just like, oh, gosh, she's so compassionate, and she's so smart, and she's so beautiful. I mean, gosh, she's wonderful. And a few days later, I'm with my son, and, uh, and we're driving down the road, same deal, we're running errands or something. If, none of you know my son, but his mind is going a million miles a minute, and he's got some project he's working on, and he's telling me about it, and this is what he's going to do, and it's just, you know, he wants to invent like a force field, I think, for the earth or something, you know, and it's just, he's got this plan, and he's going, and I'm just, I get taken into it, he's telling me how he's going to do it, and I just, all of a sudden, I have this thought hits me, just equal parts admiration, and followed immediately with guilt, just, oh, man, he's my favorite. <laughs> And I immediately go, oh, no, I'm a terrible dad. Oh, I feel so bad for the girls. You know, gosh, I mean, they're wonderful. But I just, ah, this guy, this guy, he's totally my favorite. He's totally my favorite, you know, and I don't know what to do about it, but just he's awesome. And then literally a couple days later, I pick my youngest daughter up from school. We stop for ice cream. I love sweets. Any excuse to stop for ice cream is a big win in my book. And, uh, and so we stop for ice cream, and she's just talking to me, and she's telling me a story, telling me about her friends, and how she loves her friends. And this thought hits me. 
totally unconnected to any of the other thoughts, equal parts, admiration and guilt. Ah, oh, she's my favorite. Oh, I feel so bad for the other two. And then all of a sudden it hits me and I went, wait, we've been here before. Oh, phew, they're all my favorites. You realize, yeah, you've been there too. You realize that's how God sees you, right? You realize you're all his favorites. You think there's so many people on the earth. You think there's so much stuff. You think I did this or I did that. And no, you're all his favorites. He wove you together in your mother's womb. He delights in who you are. He thinks you're fantastic. You are loved by God. The creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, and the maker of you delights in you. You know how I know? Look at this, Psalm 36. Verse 5, it's in the message translation, it's beautiful. God's love is meteoric, his loyalty astronomic, his purposes titanic, his verdicts oceanic, yet in his largeness nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. That's you. That's you. And as you begin to receive that and understand that I am a child of God, I am a follower of God, of Jesus, it makes it easier for you to back up from the reaching, step away from the pursuit of the possessions, no longer define your life by your stuff and no longer think it's all about you. God loves you deeply, and as we recognize our value as children of God, then we can live a life rich toward God. We can just receive that deposit. The second thing that God tells us, or Jesus tells us as he goes through these next 12 verses, is that we can recognize the value of others. In verse 33, to be rich toward God, recognize the value of others, he says this really simply, sell your possessions and give to charity. Here's what's happening. As you begin to recognize your identity and understand your identity as a follower of God, all of a sudden your stuff, well, it's not what defines you. So if you give some of your stuff away, you're no longer diminished. And as you give that to that other person who has less stuff and you bring them up, you don't have to worry about rank. In fact, you know that God loves them as much as God loves you. And God is inviting you to love them in a way that God loves them. My friend always said, you've never locked eyes with somebody that doesn't matter to God. Remember, we're all his favorites. To be rich toward God is to begin to see the world as God does and recognize the value of others. I once heard Andy Stanley illustrate it this way, and it involves chocolate chip cookies, and I love chocolate chip cookies, and so I'm going for it. Um, who else loves chocolate? Anybody else in here love chocolate chip cookies? Uh, love chocolate chip cookies right here? Um, who over here loves chocolate chip cookies that will come eat one with me? Yeah. You in? You have a baby. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, come bring the whole kit and caboodle, I guess. Yeah, come on. Come on. All right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me your name. Andrea. Andrea? Uh -huh. Awesome, man. What's her name? Alina. Alina. Awesome. You guys, welcome Andrea and Alina. Yeah. So come over here. I've got some chocolate chip cookies here. All right. So, so here's the thing. So first off, you need to know that these are delicious. Do they look delicious? 
Yeah, they look good. Don't they look good? Yeah, yeah, you are. She's looking at them. I think this might not be for you. I'm thinking we may not have enough cookies up here, you know. Uh, yeah, just. But Lori Groves makes these for the worship team every week, and uh, and they're so tasty. And normally I don't get to eat them because by the time I get back there after preaching, they're all gone. I mean, the worship team's not selfish or anything. They're just really tasty, and they don't they don't save any. Uh, but just to make sure, I'll just take you know, kind of a taste test. Yeah. That's a good cookie. Like fresh baked today, this morning. It's super good. Yeah. And you love chocolate chip cookies, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. This is a very good cookie. You would really like this cookie. You would. So if you had a friend over when you were little and you had two cookies and your friend came over and your mom walked in and she didn't, she didn't have any cookies and your mom walked in, she would say what? Share. Right? I mean, pretty simple. She would just walk in and be like, share, quit hogging the cookies. Right? Yeah. And if you had three friends, you know, if there were three of you, had two friends over, and your mom walked in, she would kind of break them apart and say what? Share. Share. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you can't have somebody with two cookies and two people with no cookies. Right? I mean, that's not right. That doesn't feel right. I know, I know. I feel terrible, actually. I feel terrible right now. But, but I mean, it's true. It's true. And as you watch this scene right now, you're thinking, share. Yeah, look at this cute girl. She wants a cookie. Give her a cookie for crying out loud, right? You know? I know, absolutely. But here's the thing. My wife and I, we're on this low-carb diet right now. So the only way I'm going to get to eat a cookie is up here, and I shouldn't really, I shouldn't eat both these. I mean, that's an awful lot of sugar going in my, but later, we have no cookies at home on this low-carb diet, so I might need one for later. Um, so I'm thinking, maybe I'll save this one, but here, let me pray for you guys. Let me pray for you guys. God, you see, that, you see this, this sweet mom and her daughter, you know how much they want cookies. You know what a blessing it would be for them to have a cookie. Would you, would you guys send somebody that just has a cookie to share for them? Somebody that has a cookie they don't need. Um, and if not, then would you give her the ability to make cookies herself? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Absolutely. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, right, obviously. Yes, here you go. Here's, here's a cookie. Put a cookie in your mouth instead of the keys. It'll be way better. Yeah, thank you. You're going to have a seat. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when God looks at the world from his perspective and he sees people who have two cookies and he sees those who have no cookies, do you think he might just say, share? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we get caught up in making this very complicated. How much am I allowed to keep? How much do I need to give? How, do, if I tithe, do I tithe on the gross or the net or this? You know, what's the percentage and how would I do? Blah, 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 blah. You know what we end up when we get through that mess? We end up giving away nothing, right? And we just get so complicated. You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know how much I should give. I don't, no, no, no. Here's what God's saying. As you begin to live a life rich toward God, you will understand your value as my children. You will see other people as their children. And you'll see that, yes, I know you love that cookie. I know it's a loss to see that cookie go to somebody else, but share. Doesn't have to be out of guilt. Doesn't have to be a big deal. It just is, I've blessed you. Why? 
so that you can be a blessing to other people. And so share. That's what God is calling us to. And that's what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. But there's a third thing. A life rich toward God. Not only do we recognize our value as children of God. Not only do we recognize the value of others. But we begin to recognize the value of the kingdom. Look at the rest of that verse in 33. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. You see what's happening here? There's something deeper going on. There's a recognition by Jesus that there's something deeper going on. It's a mystery. I don't fully understand it. But as we begin to recognize the depth of that, as we begin to recognize that that actually there's value in the kingdom, then we become rich toward God. The fool here in the story, the rich fool, he experienced a total loss. He died and he lost the stuff that he had, but he had not invested in the kingdom in any way, shape, or form. And so he experiences total loss. He had planned, but he had not planned far enough ahead. So here's my question. It's the same question that, that God asks that fool. He asks him in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And the connotation is what you will have prepared for yourself. You know you can't take it with you, right? I mean, do you get that? The question isn't whether you're going to take it with you. The question is, are you going to be separated from your stuff because of your generosity or because of your death? It's a simple choice that you get to choose. What's going to separate you from your stuff, your death or your active participation with God in the redemption project that he started back with Abraham to bless all nations of the earth. Imagine with me what that would be like. Imagine if what it says right here, where your kingdom, where, the, uh, where your treasure is, there the kingdom is also. If we began to use our money, not as something that's going to make it almost impossible for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, but we began to make it as a tool that just pulls us more and more into the kingdom of heaven day after day. Imagine if we began to say, you know what, we are going to let the fact that we are disciples of Jesus define our identity above all else. Imagine what would happen in this group, in this community, community as big as this, with the talent as, as present here, with the resources that are present here, with the time, with the wisdom, with the expertise. Imagine with all of that, if we began to be generous to an extreme level, because I can tell you when people get around Jesus, you know what they do? They become generous. They do all the time throughout Scripture, over and over and over. People get around Jesus, their lives are transformed, and they can't help but share. Imagine what would happen if this group did that. Imagine what would happen if those of us who are in debt began to say, you know what, I'm going to go to work on that. I'm going to get out of debt because it's got me being you know, a slave to the lender, and it doesn't allow me to be as free as I want to be in order to participate with God. Imagine if those of us who have more than enough said, you know what? I actually have more than I need. I can begin to participate in a new way. Some of you in here are really good at making money. You're really good at it. It's a gift from God. Imagine what would happen if all of a sudden you began to say, you know what, I'm going to build my business in such a way that it would be a generosity vehicle in an incredible way. What would happen 
if we would do that. I'll tell you what would happen. It would transform this city. It would transform this place. And you know what it would do? It would make Orlando more valuable on a whole different plane. Not because it has so much stuff, but because it has you living generous lives out pursuing the work that God has given you with the greater purpose of redeeming the whole world. That's what would happen. It would change this city. And if you'd let it, it'll change your life too. Pray with me. God, we are first and foremost grateful for the generosity that you have shown us, for the fact that while you were rich, you became poor, that you took on flesh to live a life among us, to call us into your kingdom, that you let nothing stand in the way of that generosity, even death on a cross. And because of that, our lives have been transformed. And we acknowledge that. We praise you for that. We sing about that. We celebrate that. But we also confess, if we're honest, that our lives haven't been transformed as much as we would like. You know our hearts, God. You know we all want to be generous. But help us to do that. Open our eyes that we might see opportunities to love you and to love our neighbor in unique ways to love people with our stuff, to invite people into our stuff, to give our stuff away in a way that transforms not only their lives, but our lives as well. Help us to be that. Without you, we don't stand a chance. And help us to remember as we seek you for that, God, that you indeed are enough. That reaching can stop with you. We can take hold of you and know that in you, we have what we need that you are enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.